0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchasi. My guest today is Dana Agmon, the author of A Colonial Affair, Commerce, Conversion, and Scandal in French India, and the book was published by Cornell University Press in 2017. Hi there, Dana. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks for having me. Could you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on France originally?
1: I became a Europeanist and an early modern historian because I had really wonderful teachers when I was an undergraduate student in Tel Aviv University. But I became a French historian for a very non-intellectual reason, which is I wanted to have a good reason to go to Paris. Mm-hmm. The joke ended up being on me because my archives are actually mostly in X. That's also a very nice place. I initially was planning to work on French Empire in the Caribbean mm-hmm. and food and foodways, but the project never really kind of gelled or took off. And it was actually a fellow student who was also working on a somewhat scholarly neglected area of the world in Avoniones. Indian Ocean, who suggested that I might start digging around in French India, Mm. and it was actually the um, published collection of the Jesuit letters that really first drew me into this project. I was reading the Jesuit letters from India, and they were... Fascinating and juicy and gossipy and really, really rich sources. And I started working on that and kind of never really looked back from that moment. In your graduate
0: training, Donna, you did a joint degree, yes, in um, history and anthropology? Yes. Do you feel like that's shaped, well, the research in this book or your orientation as a historian of France in any way that you want to say something about?
1: Right. So it did in ways both negative and positive. When I talked about the ways in which my first project in Take off I think a big part of that was actually related to the fact that I was doing fieldwork um, and not only archival research this was in Guadeloupe and I found it terrifyingly difficult mm. to do fieldwork and I was so so much happier in the archives every day that I was in the archive rather than doing fieldwork I just felt this kind of joy <laughs> you know suffusing me that I didn't actually have to talk to people which you know, is, is not a very good admission about my social skills so that's kind of in the in the negative aspect and positively i mean my fundamental belief is that the disciplinary division between uh, history and anthropology is basically a false one it's mm. it's a dichotomy that doesn't really exist or a, a division that has very little meaning in the sense that these are both disciplines that are interested in the human experience and the creation of culture in systems of of language of kinship of affinity and Being trained in both of these disciplines has just been a really enriching way, I think, for me to draw on scholarship and theories and and work that has a lot to give to historians and that we would all benefit from being kind of much more promiscuous
0: So Donna, the book focuses on a scandal, the Naniyapa affair that unfolded in the first part of the 18th century. But before we get into that affair itself and the history that you explore in the book, I wonder if you could just situate us in terms of France's place and history of empire in South Asia and just give us a bit of a sketch. I know that's a challenging thing
1: to do quickly. Well, today, the history of French India seems extremely marginal. It's not uncommon for people to be surprised to learn that French had colonies in India. Mm-hmm. The French experience in South Asia, beginning in the late 17th century, really, in 1664, with the creation of the new Compagnie des by Colbert, was very much a global effort. The colonies in India were, for a long time, just as important as those in the Caribbean, for example, in the New World. Mm -hmm. Um, And even more importantly, and I think more surprising to a lot of people, the French presence in India in the 18th century was very much one that was equivalent to that of the British presence. The French and the English found themselves in a position of being supplicants to local power authorities, whether Indian princes in the south or the Mughal authority more generally in South Asia. And it was from 1674 that the French first found themselves in Fondicherie, also through kind of a gift given to them by a local ruler. And for much of the period that I look at, so from the late 17th century to kind of the first half of the 18th century, this is a project that is very optimistic for the French crown and one in which they have real belief in the ability to create real opportunities for growth, both commercial growth and missionary growth mm-hmm. in South Asia.
0: You talk in the introduction, Donna about the and I'm just quoting you here, the two efforts at the heart of the French presence in South Asia, making money and making Christians. Were these two projects of commerce and trade and then Christianization were those two things simultaneous? you know did trade start and then came the missionaries or were they these two things that began at the same time in the region?
1: No, they absolutely were simultaneous Mm -hmm. and in a very important difference from uh, the English East India Company. They were both uh, chartered, supported and organized by the French crown. So when the French crown gave the charter to the French East India Company to come to to the Coromandel Coast, where Pondicherry is, their mission was threefold it was to colonize that is to grow kind of a a city a a french site Mm -hmm. to profit that is to engage in trade and to christianize to proselytize so even though the french jesuits and other missionaries were not necessarily under the direct authority of the french crown they were following the directives and the agenda and the mission of state-directed effort. And this is really a key difference between the French example and the English example in India.
0: So in the introduction to the book, Donna, you point to this long-standing neglect of the history of French India in both the scholarship on South Asia, which tends to emphasize the British case, and the scholarship on France, which tends to emphasize other colonial and imperial sites. But I'm just wondering how you see the French Indian example as illuminating a broader kind of French colonial picture. So would you say that working on French India or thinking about French India is something that then changes the way we think about French colonial or imperial studies more broadly?
1: I'll respond to this in two ways. One has to do with the conceptualization of this period as one characterized by failure. Mm -hmm. The assumption of failure presupposes that imperial power has a particular form, and what the book argues is that by considering alternative modes, ones that were still extractive and violent, but did not follow that particular distribution of authority, that particular modality of sovereignty, that we think about when we think about empire of the nineteenth century, then we enrich our understanding of what the category of empire actually contains. And I don't actually remember what the second point I was going to make.
0: Uh, That's fine. Um, I was going to ask you about what you refer to as distributed authority throughout the book, you know, from the introduction on, this kind of way of thinking about colonial mediation, sovereignty.
1: So I think what this example shows us is the extent to which fracture Mm -hmm. is a characteristic of empire. The closer you look, the larger the understanding of fracture becomes, Mm -hmm. right? Because what we see fracturing is not only colonizer versus colonized, which is definitely an important and crucial fracture. We see fractures among different colonial projects. So, for example, between missionaries and traders of the French company.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: then internally, we see fractures among missionaries, in this case, of three different orders, the Capuchins, the Jesuits, and the Mission Trangere. We see fractures among traders in India and traders in Paris. We see fracture between traders who are employed by the Compagnie des Armes and those who are independent, mm-hmm. independently working in India. And in all of these kind of intra-European fractures, we see how important local intermediaries were for resolving or articulating and advancing the tensions that these fractures give rise to. Mm -hmm. So it's at this intersection of mediation, and sovereignty that the book is making its central arguments.
0: So we've touched on the kind of broad issues at stake in French India in this period and the themes in terms of commerce and conversion. And now I want to ask you to situate us a bit in terms of this scandal. So Naniyapa... Who is this figure? What do we need to know about him before the story that you delve into in, in the book?
1: So nanyapa was a merchant originally from Madras, but who came as a very young man from Madras, or what today is Chennai, to Pondicherry. And I'll just say in parentheses that I use kind of the French pronunciation of the town because this is what my sources use. Today it's called Puducherry. But Nanyapa came to Pondushili as a young man, and over the course of roughly forty years of living there, he became not only one of the most important, powerful, and wealthy Tamil men who lived in Pondicherry, but one of the most important, powerful, and wealthy men there, period. Mm-hmm. And it's in the context of Nanyapa's absolute kind of centrality at many, many different structures of authority in the town that the scandal which the book narrates really gains much of its, I think, dramatic force. The reversal from being in a position where Nanyapa, who facilitated trade for the French company, moved from being a patron to not only a client, but actually a victim, is one of the most kind of shocking reversals of the story that the book uh, delves into.
0: So he's a very important figure, and then he is arrested, imprisoned. And in what year is he... Taken into custody? In
1: 1716, he was arrested for charges of tyranny and sedition. Over a course of uh, several months and a very detailed process of interrogation, he's ultimately found guilty of these crimes. He's sentenced to three years in prison, the stripping away of all of his wealth. His family his three sons are banished from Pondicherry, And he's taken to the main bazaar of the town, which is not an insignificant choice of locale because it's exactly at this place where he would have had opportunity to flaunt all of his power and authority in the past. Mm -hmm. And in that place he is uh, stripped naked and flogged with 50 lashes of the whip. He's then taken to serve out his prison term, but after only three months he dies in his prison cell. And at this point, you know, you might think we have a pretty not, unexpected colonial story in which an indigenous subject manages to obtain a fair measure of wealth and power and authority, and then the colonial state crushes him in response in order to assert its own dominance. Mm -hmm. But of course, that's not where the story ends.
0: You refer in the introduction to the Naniyap Affair as a prism for empire. Could you say a little bit about what you mean by that?
1: So this is really a central metaphor for how I think about the Nanyapa affair and the work that it's doing in the book. I mean, there's no real question about what happened in the Nanyapa affair. I'll just I'll give away the ending now because that is also my strategy in the book. He's very powerful. He is arrested, convicted and dies. But then, in a very unexpected reversal, he's posthumously exonerated. All of his family's riches are returned to him, and the man who is his chief adversary, the French governor of the colony, is sent away to France in shackles and is forced to pay substantive reparations to Nanyapa's family. Okay, so these are kind of the broad outlines of the story, Mm -hmm. and I'm not trying to reveal kind of any new details. But instead, I'm using this this historical event, this affair, much as you would turn around a prism to catch different shards of light Mm. to understand different moments or different arenas of tension in the French colony and French Empire more generally. And these have to do with the place of family and uh, the affiliation of kin, the language and the reliance on interpretation and translation, the importance of mobility, and finally with the creation of archives. So all of these realms, and also law, which I forgot, all of these realms we return to the same details of the Nanyapa affair, Mm -hmm. initial power, downfall, resurrection, kind of this very Catholic story in a sense. We return to these same details of the affair to see how they show us in each of these different arenas the extent to which internal fracture and reliance on local intermediaries was crucial for the day-to-day workings of French empire. The fight over Nanyapa's fate was about much more than Nanyapa himself. The fight was about what kind of empire is the French project at large trying to make possible in India. And different actors, whether they were Tamil merchants or uh, French traders or Jesuits, government officials, they all had different answers to this question And Nanyapa was a site in which to articulate these different answers.
0: I was really intrigued sort of coming into the book and reading the introduction by your resistance to chronological organization. And the phrase that you use that I really love is chronological organization that soothes as it smooths. Is that you? Did you just come up with that? I did. (laughs) It's really compelling as as a phrase. Just makes me want to ask you, you know, how you, how you came specifically to this affair, but also when you decided to work on this, what was there in terms of existing scholarly or other discussion of it?
1: So there is one other book that considers the Nanyapa affair at some length. It's a book by Paul Lanier from 1921 called The Jesuits and the Nanyapa Affair. And in the title, you basically discern kind of the gist of the argument. The book has a very clear set of villains those are the Jesuits, and a victim, Naniapa. Now, I don't disagree by any means with the positioning of Nanyapa as a victim, which he very, very clearly was. Mm-hmm. But I think this very stark black legend approach of explaining the entirety of this affair through the context of inter-religious strife, because Nanyapa was what today we would gloss as Hindu, and Oranye's explanation is that this was the reason for the Jesuit's persecution of him and the entirety of the meaning of the affair. Mm-hmm. Now, Olanie's book has served as the source material for almost all mentions of the Nanyapa Affair and the scholarship on French India between it came out in 1921. I hope I have that date right to the present. Mm. But the documentary richness Of the affair is actually really, really stunning. I want to go back a little bit to something you were saying about the narrative content of the story. Mm -hmm. That when I was writing the book, this was something that was very much on my mind. You know, on the one hand, I have a story here that is just tremendously dramatic. Right. I mean, narratively, it has everything that you would want from a good yarn. Right. Just in the sense of, you know, really fascinating characters, a lot of dramatic reversals, people going from rags to riches and Mm -hmm. vice versa. And, you know, as an author, there's something quite difficult in a sense about like trying to resist the drama of that as an organizing mechanism. Mm -hmm. My decision to to not base the book around that drama has to do, I think, with precisely an, an effort to understand the affair from multiple perspectives. I think a clear narrative drive in which Maniapa was a victim would have made that much more difficult. Right. The story of Nanyapa was not one that was completely unknown, but I think it was sorely, sorely underutilized. So this book emerged from my dissertation, and the dissertation was not about the Nanyapa affair, actually, although Nanyapa was an important case study in it. And kind of the most important conceptual shift between the dissertation project and the book was precisely this decision to make the book about the Nanyapa affair and not about uh, colonial intermediaries more generally, which is what uh, the project that initially began life as.
0: I just want to follow up on this idea of the richness of the source material and ask you a little bit about the range of types of documents and you... You laid out for us a few moments ago this multiplicity of actors involved and with different agendas and the kinds of tensions. And I'm just wondering how you get at some of those different perspectives in the source material that was
1: available to you. Right. So the two parts of your question are, of course, deeply related. I mean, Mm. I think in order to get at that multiplicity, you know, I was very fortunate to find mentions of Nanyapa and the Nanyapa Affair in many archives, many different kinds of sources. Mm. So, you know, these are the official records of the company design. These were by far kind of the most most voluminous sources in which I found mention of Manyapa. In fact In this period between 1716 to 1724, something really quite shocking that happens in this archive, it's as if the writers are possessed by the Nanyapa Affair. Mm. And, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages of reports are devoted to the Nanyapa Affair and reproducing all of the documents uh, produced by many different actors in relation to the affair. So this is a very important collection, but it's by no means the only one. Mm. I found mention of the Nanyapa Affair in Jesuit archives, in the mission archives, in archives that were left in Pondicherry when uh, the French state moved most of the sources back to Paris in the 1960s, but also in places that you, you know, I wouldn't necessarily have expected to find them. So, for example, in the municipal archives in Nantes, in kind of the Capuchin collections, places where, you know, you would not think that the plight of a Tamil man in Pondicherry would have made such an impact. You know, a really interesting example, which I found right as I was finishing the book, it was, you know, I'd already like submitted the manuscript. It was, I don't think it was quite in production, but it was very close. I was no longer supposed to be like finding new bits of material. (laughs) But I was uh, in Paris and I was looking at marine records, the Navy records. And this was a full 60 years after Naniapa's death. And there was some kind of back and forth about administrative issues in Pondicherry. And the um, people writing from the Navy in Paris referred to Nanyapa and his fate as kind of the reason for making a particular decision that they Mm. made about staffing in Pondicherry. And I have to say, it was one of these moments when you sit in the archive and, you know, your breath is just taken away. The particulars of the family affiliation of Nanyapa and the importance of his work to the company were still guiding the decisions, not only in India, but of officials who had never set foot, you know, in Pondicherry and who never would.
0: It's fascinating. Then I want to ask you about the three parts of the book, the world of the affair, the unfolding of the affair and the afterlives of the affair. But before... I do. I just want to linger on something you say in the introduction to the book, which is that, and I'm quoting you here, that this affair was neither French nor Indian, but a Pondicherry affair.
1: When I spoke about kind of the fracturing, kind of made manifest by the Nanyapa affair, This is true for European institutions and actors, right? So I spoke about traders and missionaries, but it's also very much true for the Tamil people who are involved in these processes of mediation. You know, if we try to understand this only as an example of kind of the problems of French empire, we grossly underestimate the ways in which these French newcomers were implicated in these local networks, that mm-hmm. in many ways predated and then, you know, postdated kind of the decisions that they were making at a particular instance. And I think this is a, um, a way to understand the Affair is a, a fundamental affair. That doesn't mean that it's merely local, mm-hmm. but it's in the context of this coming together of Tamil and French agendas and ambitions that we can understand why the affair became the drama that it did.
0: Mm -hmm. I really like the turn of phrase that you use in the introduction. The the project here is to situate empire in place. Would you, Dana, describe the book as a
1: microhistory? I don't know if you had the same experience, but mine has been that you don't actually finish the book when you finish writing it. <laughs> and this issue of the microhistory is something that I've had a lot of opportunity to think about actually after finishing the book. And I kind huh. of wish I could go back because I now actually feel a very strong uh, sense of affiliation with microhistory as a huh. as a methodology and a theory in ways that I hadn't entirely grappled with when I wrote the book. Mm. So I've been really influenced by Francesca Trivelato's work on the category that she identifies as a global microhistory. And I think that microhistory as a a genre has a tendency to be misunderstood uh, in two ways. One is that we think that a microhistory has to be about something that is small or neglected or unimportant, and that is not at all the case, mm. and the second is that we think that a microhistory has to have a really dramatic and gripping story, and you know, if you go back and read The Cheese and the Worms, with I did with students last year, mm. you know, it's an incredible, amazing book, but it's also really, really dull, I have to say. <laughs> I mean, I think what microhistory does that is most powerful, and here I'm drawing on a, you know, work by Carlo Ginzburg and Giovanni Levi and Arlette Farge and Jacques Revelle, is consider the way in which the benefit of looking at a smaller scale is that we can understand things that allow us to shift the larger paradigm.
0: Mm.
1: You know, if we look from the scale of the French state or French empire, it seems to us that the project of making Christians and making money are deeply, deeply intertwined. And we have a lot of evidence, you know, at the level of the state of how that is true because of funding decisions, because of personnel decisions, because of, you know, various kinds of connections between, you know, the missionary project and the commercial project. Mm -hmm. But if we reduce the scale to this kind of hyper localized site of the body of this one Tamil man, we understand something that is true not only for this one man, but is generally true which is, in fact, that these two projects, symbiotic and imbricated as they are in one another, in fact, are pursuing radically different agendas. Mm-hmm. So what I mean in this case is that, you know, the traders really want to maintain the status quo in place because the status quo is the way in which you make money, whereas the missionaries and especially the Jesuits want to have an extremely radical disruption of all the local structures so that they can then position themselves in Catholicism kind of at the the Mm -hmm. top of this structure. And understanding the extent to which these two French-run state-directed projects are actually in opposition to one another, which is a paradigmatic shift, would not be possible if we stayed at a larger scale. It becomes evident through this smaller scale.
0: In the first part of the book, The World of the Affair, you explore what you refer to as the elusive origins of this colonial scandal. This is a really intriguing chapter because it's not really a chapter about establishing the origins of Naniapa's arrest and imprisonment. It's really a chapter in which you're looking at different competing accounts. Can you tell us a little bit about the competing origin stories of his arrest and, you know, what's at stake in those different
1: positions? The chapter attempts to pose what seems like a simple question, why was Naniapa arrested? And I go through four different kind of groups of actors. One is Naniapa, the second is the Jesuits, uh, the third is Governor Abel, who is the main kind of uh, French official adversary to Naniata. And the third is a um, group of merchants from Saint Melon in France who also have a role to play in this affair as defenders of. Nanyapa. And what I'm trying to show in this chapter is that, you know, as you say, it's not possible to answer this question because he was arrested for very, very different reasons, and that that difference, that disagreement about why Nanyapa was arrested is really the heart of understanding why the Nanyapa affair became an affair. And the the answers to this are are, are quite divergent. I mean, for Nanyapa, it has to do with the falling apart of cooperation between Tamil intermediaries and French officials. Mm -hmm. For the Jesuits, it has to do with a very specific kind of religious denigration that they accuse Nanyapa of having committed against them, which has to do with kind of their generally very weak position in the the general religious uh, landscape of conversion. For the Samalo merchants, it has to do with the importance of information and why it is that they are or are not given access to what is happening in India and the crucial role that people like Nanyapa and Nanyapa himself fill in providing these information networks between France and India. And finally, for Governor Abel it has to do with the abuse of power that he blames Nanyapa for carrying out against the people under his authority, local Tamil people whom he uh, abused, according to the governor. All of these answers are equally important as an explanation for the origins of the affair, because what they demonstrate is precisely the way in which the life of someone like Nanyapa as an exemplar of the importance of mediation for the um, distribution and articulation of authority in the colony allows people to have a conversation about what actually that authority should look like. Mm-hmm. And all these answers are part and parcel of an entirely different philosophy of rule, you know, of what it is that actually French rule is meant to achieve in South India.
0: In the second chapter of the book, Dana, you bring in this question of how significant a role family and kinship networks played in empire and colonial rule. So could you say a little bit about how you pursue the history of the fair from the perspective of family?
1: What's really, I think, was illuminating for me in doing this research is to discover the extent to which the affiliation of family and the structures of family were very much shared by French and Tamil actors. So this was really an arena. Unlike, for example, language, where the divisions were more stark, where you see very much of a similar process of relying on kind of the stickiness of ties of blood in order to uh, advance political agendas. And we see this in the... These broker dynasties, these Tamil dynasties that I mentioned before, the ones that Nanyapa eh, comes from in the rival family, but you see it just as much among French actors. Now, of course, it, it should not really be much of a surprise, given that, you know, the very the very structure of the French crown is an exemplar of you know the ways in which the structure of of blood uh, the affinities of blood mm-hmm. advanced political agendas but you also see this as a much at a much smaller scale in india and here you know there's a kind of historical confluence in which the Nanyapa affair, in many senses, is actually driven by three different sets of fathers and sons. Mm-hmm. So one of this is Nanyapa and his sons, who then are the ones who advocate for his posthumous exoneration. Mm-hmm. And the other one is the French governor and his son, who serves as his henchman in a sense, in the course of the interrogation, mm-hmm. and both of whom are punished at the end. And the third is a a very interesting pairing of a man named Mutiapa, who served as a catechist or a religious uh, interpreter for the Jesuits, and his son Manuel, who was an interpreter for the French company. And that particular pairing is really important for the argument that we're trying to make about the connections between the trading world and the missionary world. We see very stark divisions between actual traders and missionaries, but if you look through the perspective of local intermediaries, well, they're in fact right at the crack between these two places, mm-hmm. we see we see men who move back and forth between of the, between these two worlds. And in general, the argument that the chapter is making really has to do with the political efficacy of kinship, which is very much kind of a shared uh, feature of French and South Indian life, but one in which again, we see the traders, The French traders and the missionaries being very much in opposition to one another. Both sides rely on it entirely, but for the Jesuits, it's a huge problem, right? Whereas for the traders, it's very much a thing to be inculcated and cherished and built upon. This is the chapter that,
0: you know, I found myself looking for these moments where I could see the
1: anthropologist in here or something.
0: But maybe I'm too attached to the division between our dis- those disciplines.
1: No, not at all, because I mean, I think it is absolutely true that work by anthropologists was really crucial for me to understand the, um, the power of the ties of kinship mm-hmm. at work here. And it also, I think, is a place in which I'm trying to move away from some of the scholarship on South Asia, which has really posited caste as being kind of the, the chief uh, the most important and powerful category in order mm-hmm. to understand kind of group affiliation. And here I'm moving away from caste and saying that it's actually the structures of the family in many ways being more powerful and more impactful in mediating this relationship between French and Tamil residents of Pondicherry rather than uh, that of caste, which has been so central for, for anthropologists of South India.
0: In the second part of the book, Donna, you look at the. The second part is called the unfolding of the affair, so you're sort of moving past the questions and debates about the origins of Naniyapa's arrest and the kind of backstory of the families and the context uh, in Pondicherry. And in the third chapter of the book, which is the first of this second part, you point to how imperial history has tended to neglect, and I'm quoting you here the centrality of polylinguistic scenarios and colonial encounters. And I found this really fascinating, the way this chapter looks at French, Portuguese, and Tamil relationships, interactions, and communication. So how do you get at the affair, and what do we learn about the affair and its dynamics by focusing on the linguistic, on, on communication and language?
1: So an important point for me to make here is that uh, even though Nanyapa lived in Pondicherry for 40 years and was employed in an official position by the French training company, he did not speak French. Um, and this was not conceived of by anyone, neither Nanyapa nor his French employers, as being a problem. Mm-hmm. Their shared language was Portuguese, which was a very common uh, lingua franca in this region. And it was only in the context of the affair that. Naniapa's French interlocutors insisted on speaking French with him even though they shared the language of Portuguese and in fact, you know, for years prior to the affair had held regular daily communication in that language. But one of the really most, I think, heartbreaking aspects of the affair is the extent to which Naniapa was made deaf, basically, to the deliberations going on in the course of his investigations even though there was a possibility for shared communication. So in many ways, what the insistence on French in the course of the Nannyap Affair demonstrates is the, sen- the extent to which what the Affair shows us is a breakdown of regular operating procedure in which things like you know, an insistence on French language, which is something that we see in the 19th century as being, of course, a very crucial component of French imperial ideology and policy, is just completely irrelevant for understanding how this empire enacted itself on the ground. And, of course, polyglosia is not much like family. It's very much a construct that is shared by France and India. Of course, I think no one is surprised to find out that many languages were spoken simultaneously in South India. Mm-hmm. But, of course, as, for example, work by Paul Cohen has shown, you know, very much was this was very much the case in France as well, even in official context. So, for example, he has shown how in French courts, you know, we would have regularly the use of many different languages, not only kind of in more familial or village settings, but in kind of sites of the state. So understanding the world in which polyglacia was kind of the go-to mechanism for both kind of sides of the colonial encounter I think is another way in which we need to differentiate what we think we know about empire and its ambition from the 19th century and the 20th century Mm. and question how relevant that model is for the 18th century.
0: In the fourth chapter of the book, Donna, you really focus on the affair as a court case and one that was not only a case in which Naniyapa's fate would be decided, but a kind of court case that turned into a, a sort of trial of the idea or the role of local intermediaries in general. So could you say mm-hmm. a little bit about how the specific case of Naniyapa sort of turns into a legal or judicial kind of debate <laughs> over the the question of local intermediaries more broadly?
1: So the the legal aspect of the affair was was very convoluted and it actually took me like a few years of immersion in the the sources to really understand you know what were the different stages Mm. of this case. Partly this has to do with the fact that you know there are no there are no lawyers allowed uh, in the colonies in this period uh, in French India but also in other colonial sites. Mm-hmm. For a long time it was not actually clear to me since Nanyapa did not speak French he was he could read and write of course very fluently in Tamil and he was orally fluent in Portuguese it's possible he could write in Portuguese as well though um, we don't know that for certain. Mm. But you know for a long time I didn't entirely Understand who was actually writing all of these appeals, and kind of figuring out the answer to that was really kind of the kind of the most satisfying moments in the research process. To understand that it was actually a French trader, an employee of the Compagnie des Indes, who acted as kind of the co-author of these legal appeals and one of the things i think that kind of thinking about this case as a legal case really made visible or helps clarify is the importance of procedure for all of the actors involved Mm -hmm. because it's important to explain that for nanyapa both in the appeals that he filed while he was still alive and the appeals that his sons and their french co-author filed after his death there is not at issue the question of whether or not the French had the right to judge him in this way. Mm. So the appeals do not hinge on the fact of a denial of legal authority, but rather what they hinge on is the misuse of proper legal procedure. And the claims that the NYAPA is making are not you know, ones that claim that there is no French sovereignty or no legal authority over him. But in fact, he is claiming all the protections that French law in particular, a, a particular the criminal ordinance of 1670 is a very important kind of a piece of legislation or a decree in this, in this affair. He's claiming the protection of law that is due to him as a member of this colonial society.
0: You make the point in this chapter, Dana, that the results of this case are not determined in advance in a way that one might expect, making assumptions about this as a colonial context in which a Tamil man has been arrested and imprisoned. You argue here in the chapter that this was a system that was, in fact, open to appeal, that there are these breaks or differences between the judicial institutions at work in this affair and uh what we might understand as the colonial state so could you say a little bit about this i guess this is one of the many uh divisions or lines of fracture that that you're talking about could you say a little bit more about that
1: i mean so we have very good evidence that the fix was not in for Mm Nanyapa because he won now you know unfortunately it was too late for him Mm -hmm. personally but there is no question that if we think about this as a struggle that the winner in the struggle was Nanyapa and his family eh, particularly his his elder son um, who ended up filling the same role that Nanyapa did as chief commercial broker to the company design. and people of his lineage then filled this role back you know on and off for decades to come i think this is a really important kind of thing for us to to consider because This is, I think, another instance of um, showing us how this is a colonial situation in which, you know, we don't only find instances of kind of the agency of the colonized or the resistance of the colonized kind of by reading, you know, against the line or through the, uh, no, uh, through the lines or against the grain. Mm -hmm. But instead, this is a situation in which, kind of an entire kind of global apparatus lined up behind the colonized subject. Mm -hmm. And I think by thinking about it in those terms, we need to understand the ways in which local intermediaries like Nanyapa in this particular historical context, of course, this is not true for all colonial intermediaries, but in the context of the Indian Ocean world, you know, are really, I think, in many ways, better understood as being the patrons and their French uh, employers in many ways are uh, the clients. And, you know, that relationship is a fluid one, right? I mean, it's obviously not an absolutely fixed division as evidenced by the fact that the state was still able to bring kind of the, to bear the power of the the violence of the state upon his body in very brutal and non-reversible ways. Mm -hmm. But if we think about kind of the, the outcome of this legal procedure, you know, that division between where does the power to appeal to the state and and receive kind of success in that appeal, then, you know, we see that these local intermediaries actually had access to mm-hmm. these kind of modes of appeal and and reversal of cases in which the state, you know, overstepped its authority.
0: The third part of the book, Donna, focuses on the afterlives of the affair. So we're moving past the conviction and eventually getting to the point where uh, his son will take up the sort of family legacy and family, his father's position. That fifth chapter in the book between Paris and Pondicherry really focuses on the mobility and itineraries of intermediaries in empire. Could you say a little bit about how this back and forth between France and India what role that plays in the unfolding of the events that follow Naniapa's conviction
1: i think we tend to think of travel as being a particular activity or prerogative that is undertaken by the colonizers mm-hmm. right so they are the ones who you know pick up and leave and make a new a new life for themselves in the colonial site. Now of course it's true that for the French-born actors in this book who found themselves in India there was a very significant kind of moment of mobility moving between Europe and South Asia, but once in the colony what this chapter shows is that in fact the mobility of French actors was quite limited. And in many ways, depended on the mobility of their local intermediaries, who, mm-hmm. for example, had connections in other ports across the Indian Oceans, were able to create relationships of trade kind of across the sea in the Indian Ocean in ways that French newcomers who were not known or welcome and not recognised through kind of the structures of either kinship or religion or language, you know were not able to move around as freely. And once again, the Nanyapa affair, I think, is a very, very compelling instance of this general dynamic. So in the course of the Nanyapa affair, I would mentioned that kind of the two main adversaries were Nanyapa and his family and the French governor, Governor Hebert. At some point in the course of the affair, while Hebert, you know, who had been assigned to Fond du did not have the opportunity to leave, you know, finds himself stuck there pleading his case by letters, which take as much as two years to make it between India and France, while Nanyapa's eldest son, Guru Vapa, hops on an English ship, uh, takes that ship to London, and from there travels to India, sorry, to Paris. In Paris, he's taken in by the missionaries of the Mission Étrangère, who are the rivals of the Jesuits. So again, we see kind of how these rivalries upon rivalries help people kind of advance their agendas. Mm-hmm. and. Once there, he's introduced to the French royal uh, royal family. And in the chapel of the Palais Royal, in the the royal family's private chapel, he is baptized into Christianity with the regent of France, Philippe d'Orléans, serving as his godfather. Um, And a few weeks later, he's inducted into a French noble order. And he comes back to to India as now a, a nobleman. Importantly, the only other nobleman in the colony is the French governor, his Mm -hmm. rival, who now finds himself, you know, in some ways his peer and with a decision against Ebert and in favor of his family. So it's a, I think, a very kind of illuminating example of the ways in which intermediaries had the global connections and the wherewithal to kind of advance their agendas, not only in their place of origin, but across really a global stage.
0: You go on in Chapter 6, Donna, to focus on the, arch- the archiving of the affair by intermediaries, missionaries, and traders. So I guess I have two questions here. What was the will to archive at this time among these different groups? What were some of the tensions? And then, yeah... How can we understand what you're doing in this chapter in relationship maybe to recent, when I say recent, maybe work in the last decade or two, that is thinking sort of carefully about the colonial archive, the politics of the building of archives. You know, you're looking in this chapter at the motivations behind the archiving uh, of the actors in the period that you're working on. But of course, that has repercussions then for the materials and sources that you had access to as you were putting together this book. So I guess I just wonder about that soup of issues in this last Mm -hmm. uh, chapter before the epilogue.
1: So this chapter is very much, I understand it also, like you said, as being part of the recent archival turn, Mm. you know, which is an attempt to think very critically and carefully about how the archives that we use actually are constituted and come into being and what are Mm. the Kind of political decisions that make certain documents legible and others not. And where I see this chapter contributing to this conversation is by thinking about the archive not only as an arm of the state or even of an institution, which I think is how we tend to think about archival efforts or archiving efforts as being an instantiation of institutional power, but instead showing what You know, some scholars have called kind of folk archival practices, the ways in which people who don't have any institutional structure behind them are very much engaged in the creation of a personal archive from which to make arguments about the past, Mm. which is kind of generally what I understand an archive to be. And what is striking is the extent to which we see these efforts at archiving being very much shared among many of the different characters or uh, persons who are central to the affair. So this is true for Nanyapa and his son, who make arguments about the destruction of their personal archive as being paramount to the destruction of the man. Um, their personal kind of financial records were held in the fourth, In which is on the waterfront, and there the the water destroyed the documents, made them illegible, and therefore made it impossible for them to provide evidence against claims of financial malfeasance. But we also see Governor Abeo making very much the same kinds of arguments about the seizure of his personal diary and the way in which taking that away from him is equivalent to the taking of the most secret, sacred part of his soul and making it public. Mm -hmm. So all these different ways in which independent efforts at archiving are indicative of a larger phenomenon that the book is about more generally. So much in the same way that I talk about political authority being distributed, here we also see the act of archiving being distributed. And we see how people who we might not necessarily expect, so for example, Nanyapa and people of his lineage, many of whom were very famous Tamil diarists beginning in the 1830s, especially a man called Anandaranga Pillai, who was Anyapa's nephew and is known as the most famous uh, diarist in the Tamil literary tradition, how all of these people were making claims for their own authority to create archives and the extent to which these archives did or did not later on in the 19th and 20th century uh, receive the sanction of the state. Mm -hmm. And I'll say in parentheses, although I know this will come up later, that this is related to the project I'm working on now.
0: Well, before we get to that, I just want to ask you about the epilogue of the book. It's this interesting closure of the book where you uh, come to your own sort of travels, (laughs) doing the research for this project, meeting a descendant of Naniyapa, um, which makes me want to ask you about the status of this story in Pondicherry. What's the the life of this story or the the memory of this story among the family and descendants, or even more broadly in the, in the context of Pondicherry?
1: So I'll, I'll mention that um, the epilogue of the book has a set of photographs that I took in Pondicherry, which come from the interior of a mansion of this man that I just mentioned, this famous diarist, Pillai, who was Naniapa's nephew. Mm-hmm. And this house is still owned by his descendants. And I can answer um, both of your questions, which is how, you know, how I arrived at this like particular encounter and what is the kind of the legacy or the life of the story in Pondicherry with the same answer, Mm -hmm. which is, um, I was in India doing research for this project. And also I had a a Tamil tutor who I met with daily, um, you know, who was teaching me Tamil and he asked me what I was working on. So, you know, I told him and I mentioned, you know, Nanyapa and he said, oh yes, of course I know his family, you know, immediately. (laughs) Mind you, this is centuries to the day. Yes. (laughs) And, you know, I was, was tremendously moved by this. I think it's, it's very few historians of the 18th century who have the opportunity to not only walk in the sites, you know, where the subject of their research, you know, stood and lived, but to actually meet the members of their family. Right. And, you know, he then introduced me to uh, this man who is a descendant of Anandaranga Pillai and who owns the mansion now, who uh, extremely kindly uh, welcomed me into his house and, and showed me around. And to me, it was kind of the immediacy of that connection that the that the memory of this story is, you know, we see it not only 60 years later in Paris, but only also 300 years after that, you know, in Pont is an indication of the strength and importance and authority that this family had in the town mm-hmm. and the extent to which the attempt of, the temporary attempt of some structures of the French state to renegotiate kind of the importance and the power of Nanyapa and of men like him, you know, had only very limited success. It had limited success in Nanyapa's lifetime. I mean, Mm. it tragically succeeded for him personally, but not for his family and his lineage. And it also had limited success In the the context of the historical memory of this, that the importance of this family in Pondicherry is, you know, still very much present there in the 21st century as well.
0: So, Donna, I have one last question for you, which is uh, which you hinted at a second ago. Um, What are you working on now?
1: So I'm working on two projects. One, which was supposed to be a standalone article, and now three years later, it seems like uh, it maybe has grown into something a little bit bigger, which is about Mm. a group of colonial administrators in the 20th century, in the 19-teens, 1920s, and 1930s in India, and their work as amateur historians who were very much engaged in projects of both the creation of original scholarship about 18th century French India, and also the preservation of historical materials from this period. Mm. And what I'm trying to do in this project is think about what was the meaning of 18th century French India for French colonial administrators in the early 1920s, sorry, in the early, in the early 20th century, in this period of, on the one hand, kind of the most hubristic flowering, if you will, of French imperial ideology, but in the context of kind of the first emergence of anti-colonial struggles, Mm. places like Indochina and Algeria. And so that is one project I'm working on. And the second one is back in the 18th century and has to do with law, and particularly the ways in which French legal institutions in India drew on local Tamil, Mughal, and other uh, South Asian and Indian Ocean ways of resolving disputes into their own courts. So I'm interested not so much in forum shopping, which has been a very important and rich uh, strand of the scholarship on uh, law and colonialism, but rather on the ways in which French courts invited into their own kind of institutional centers these alternative modes of resolving disputes.
0: Well, those both sound like very rich projects, and I hope you'll keep me posted on their progress. Donna, I just want to thank you so much for joining me and for writing the book.
1: Thank you so much, Roxanne. This was really a pleasure. You've
0: been listening to New Books in French Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network.